You're listening to the Get Global Network podcast of Community Party Radio on SoMetro Radio. I'm your host, David Samuels. Listen to the show live on the first, third, and fifth Tuesday of each month at 8 p.m. Eastern Time, 7 p.m. Central, 5 p.m. Pacific, on SoMetro Radio, one of the original member stations of the Get Global Network. Live from Hartford, Connecticut, you're listening to Community Party Radio on So Metro Radio. Commentary on urban issues from a grassroots perspective. I'm David Samuels. Tonight's show features an interview courtesy of Democracy Now! with Chokwe Antar Lamumba, the new mayor of Jackson, Mississippi. The latest installment of our Policy Watch series will include, will include analysis of the Hartford bankruptcy issue and the economic collapse in Kansas, which was caused by Republican Governor Sam Brownback's budget plan that is the model for President Donald Trump's proposed federal budget. i also give my take on Johnny Eric Williams, a professor at Trinity College here in Hartford, who created a national firestorm with his social media posts on racism. Check out our, our Twitter page, at Community Party One. The tweet promoting tonight's show includes resource information on show topics. We've also posted ordering info for my book, False Choice, The Bipartisan Attack on the Working Class, the Poor, and Communities of Color. Uh, got a, some special program notes here. The Community Party Radio on So Metro Radio interview with Middletown, Connecticut Mayor, and Connecticut gubernatorial candidate Dan Drew will air Tuesday, August 15th at 8 p.m. Eastern Time, 7 p.m. Central, 5 p.m. Pacific. Topics will include police accountability, the state budget crisis, single-payer health care, and urban policy issues that are ignored by the corporate media. For our Connecticut listeners, Bridget Quinn Carey, CEO of, Hartford, of the Hartford Public Library, has made a budget cut totaling around $1.25 million, resulting in the closing of the Mark Twain branch, the Blue Hills branch, and the Campfield branch libraries. A petition demanding that these branches remain open is, is posted in the resources section of the tweet promoting tonight's show at Community Party One. The 2017 Connecticut legislative session ended last month with no state budget being passed. Currently, the state is being run under executive order by Governor Dan Malloy, which means file services are being cut. Speaker of the House, Harrison, it's Friday. The House of Representatives wouldn't be voting on a new budget today, and he did vote on, on, on a budget. Uh, he said the old budget would be passed by July 31st. Speaker Josh Elliott posted a Facebook update on the budget stalemate between the Democrats and Republicans. Elliott also presented his budget proposal and suggestions for how concerned citizens could get involved. Connecticut listeners can check out Elliott's Facebook book post in the resources section of the tweet promoting tonight's show. Once again, that's at Community Party One. Now we got a, a special report, some uh, breaking news today. Uh, Connecticut State uh, Employee uh, Unions overwhelmingly ratified a concessions 
deal with Governor Dan Malloy. I'm going to um, read a, a couple of paragraphs here from the Connecticut Mirror re report by Keith Fainoff and Mark Pazniokas. Unionized state employees have voted overwhelmingly to ratify the concessions deal negotiated with, with the administration of Governor Dan P. P. Malloy. Shifting the focus to a closely divided General Assembly where Republicans say they will attempt to reject an agreement worth an estimated $1.57 billion over two years. The State Employees Bargaining Agent Coalition announced late Tuesday morning that 85% of the votes cast were in favor of accepting concessions that will freeze wages and 83% backed increased contributions for health and pensions and other benefits-related concessions. Union leaders who reported the vote tallies at the Hartford offices of the union local representing state planners, architects, and engineers also pressed hard for tax hikes on wealthy households and major corporations, something Malloy and most lawmakers have opposed this year. And that's the end of the Connecticut Mirror report, and I just wanted to add that the Connecticut Republicans, they want the concession deal scrapped, they want collective bargaining eliminated, and for union contracts to be determined by the General Assembly. And with that, I'm going to bring in our guest contributor, John Hollis, a retired State of Connecticut employee and a former union steward. He's going to uh, give us his analysis of the concessions deal that was ratified by state employee unions today. What's up, John? Hey, David. Uh, thanks for having me on today. Uh, give me an opportunity to speak. Um, hey, I, I appreciate you coming. I appreciate you coming on short notice, man. And I'm oh, going to yeah. give you the floor, man. What do, what do you think of this deal? Well, it's it's horrible for uh, the working class uh, state employee. Uh, they created that new tier four, which is a hybrid um, uh, defined benefit pension, uh, and they. Um, uh, a 401k type uh, uh, combined plan. Uh, they uh, uh, they're they're really uh, cutting back on the uh, cost of living adjustment. Uh, people that retire after I believe it's uh, July. I mean uh, July one or June 30th of 2022, they won't get their first uh, COLA for 30 months. That's two and a half years uh, before you get your first cost of living raise. Um, you know, this is all done under, uh, you know, Governor Malloy, uh, these past CPAC agreements, and it's, it, you know, it's having a it's a tremendous uh, adverse impact on the uh, uh, average state employee to be able to to retire. What do you think about the um, the position of the Republicans that state employees did not give back enough, and all they want to do, or they want they want to kill collective bargaining and 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 they want um they want the legislatures in the Connecticut General Assembly to um to to craft the future contracts. Well, uh, 
I, I uh, don't believe in taking away collective bargaining. Um, and as far as uh, the state employees not giving back enough, this is uh, they they reopened uh, the CBAC contract for pension and health care now twice under uh, Governor Malloy. I you know uh, if that's not good enough, um, it, I mean it's 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 crazy. I mean the state employees gave back a lot. I mean they. The last time around, I personally uh, know uh, she she was actually a union steward. She had to take care of her mother, and under the last feedback agreement, um, she, uh, you, you know, uh, Governor Malloy had doubled the early retirement penalty from 3% a year to 6%. It would be hard enough to take 3%. Because she had to uh, uh, retire early at age 55. She had 27 and a half years in with the state. She's losing uh, uh, 6% a year times five years. They cut her pension by 30%. That's huge. Um, she, she's going to lose without considering cost of living increases between uh, – Three hundred fifty to four hundred fifty thousand dollars potentially in her lifetime. That that's just one person. I mean, uh, if, if anyone could be, have a straight face and and go before the taxpayers and say the state employees didn't um, give back enough, is is totally ludicrous. Now, Ralph Nader, he's he said that the the. the you know the, the you state employees need to develop what you call political self-respect. You talked about the fact that unions just uh, always uh, back the Democrats without making any demands. Uh, th this deal was ratified by by a landslide, 83 percent. Um, employees were strong-armed into this deal. They were looking at. 4,000 layoffs uh, if they did not uh, agree to the uh, agree to the concessions deal. Uh, last week we had uh, Middletown, uh, Connecticut Mayor Dan Drew. He announced his candidacy for governor. During his uh, his his announcement, he talked about the fact that state employees were again being asked to uh, make concessions. I mean, this is the third time. Since 2009, state employees have agreed to concessions. He talked about state employees uh, again being asked to give concessions. Meanwhile, uh, the Swiss bank uh, UBS and another bank that was owned by General Electric were given $20 million in corporate welfare by the Connecticut General Assembly. And both banks have since left the state. And Drew talked about the need to, to end corporate welfare and to, to implement a a progressive tax um, on the wealthy, which was definitely uh, music to my ears. What chance do you see of a candidate like Dan Drew with his platform being endorsed by the uh, state employee unions? Um, I'm not. He's going to run as a Democrat, correct? Yes. 
Yeah, so if he if he comes out as the front runner, I would imagine the state uh, union employee unions would back him up. Uh, I mean, if it, if it comes down to uh, Dan Drew is to uh, wins uh, the nomination um, I, for under the Democrat Party, I would I would say the unions just generally that's a Always who they back, whoever's the uh, Democrat uh, candidate. Uh, the unions did at today at the press conference. You know they did talk about um, the you know, the ending corporate tax loopholes. They said, hey, you know we did our part. We we agreed to concessions again. They did call on the state to to end corporate tax loopholes and and tax the rich. My concern is. You know, there's a lot of talk about um, Nancy Wyman running. She's uh, the lieutenant governor. Um, despite the fact that Governor Malloy has been, I think, the, the least popular governor in the history of this state, um, Malloy, uh, somehow Wyman remains uh, extremely popular. And uh, if, if she enters the race, she's expected to be the front runner. Do you think uh, if that happens, uh, you know, do you see her being backed by the uh, by the unions, I'd say probably they would back her uh, before they would back uh, Dan uh, Drew. Yeah, and that that's very concerning to me because uh, Nancy Wyman has stood smiling by Dan Malloy while he has um, dismantled state services and um, attacked state workers and and protected the rich and corporations. Right, and uh, it, it, you saw the last time around how they, uh, Malloy and uh, Nancy Wyman, uh, Edith Craig, uh, twisted our arms and it said, if you know, if you know what's good for you, you'll re-vote for this uh, that CPAC uh, agreement that was in um, 2010, uh, right? Uh, right, right. That that was the first yep. one, 2011, yep. I think it was. Yeah, yeah. Um, and or or and they and they were actually the Democrats were saying they were going to strip us of collective bargaining, and they had the bill already waved it, waving it in front of our nose. But like you said, I think the union would still back uh, because they were cozy with Nancy Wyman since she was. Uh, uh, comptroller and all of that, you know. So I would, I would think they would back her before they would back Dan Drew. And it's a, and it's a pretty safe bet that uh, Nancy Wyman's policies will be uh, in the ballpark park with Dan Malloy's, and I, and I think John, that's the big problem with the state employee unions is they continue to support these neoliberal Democrats. That, uh, that that you know cut our cut our uh, state workers' wages and cut our benefits and threaten us with layoffs if we don't play ball. Yeah, that, that that's the cycle. I mean, it's the pattern. You see it all the time. They they uh, uh, throw out all this corporate welfare and and then all of a sudden there's a manufactured deficit and they come after the state employees and then they use scare tactics and say, well. You know, if you still want your job, uh, you don't want to get laid off, you, you better uh, vote for this contract. You know, to, to, we're in some uh, uh, 
difficult economic times, but they're uh, creating these uh, difficult economic times that that we're in. And um, and then they sell out the uh, rank and file. Meanwhile, the uh, leadership uh, still has, uh, you know, their uh, uh, high pay and benefits, and um, it doesn't affect them. Exactly. Well, we're just going to have to wait and see, uh, you know, with Dan Drew, we're going to have to see if, uh, you know, he's going to stick to these progressive policies uh, as the campaign moves on. And if he gets in a position to win, uh, we're going to have to see if he, you know, you know, won't water down, um, uh, you know, his his platform at all. Uh, but uh, he definitely right now he, he sounds like the guy that uh, if he sticks by his platform, he sounds like the guy that uh, state workers need to get behind. It, it sure seems that way because uh, uh, up to this point, uh, the state workers uh, have been, uh, you know, given the raw end of the deal, uh, you know, uh, over the years. I mean, they, they've they been giving back. You're on your fourth tier. You had tier one, tier two, tier two A, tier three. Now you got tier four. What's the next tier going to be? Like, I, I'm, I'm saying if we ever go to a tier five, it'll probably be a, a straight 401k plan and strip the health care out of the, uh, you know, the retiree uh, benefits and stuff. Well, the story. And collective bargaining, too, as, as well. Well, this story is uh, really it's still uh, ongoing. We still have to see what's going to happen uh, as far as a budget vote. The Democrats, uh, uh, Joe Arasimowicz, the Speaker of the House, is saying uh, he wants to have a budget vote by the 31st. The Republicans are digging in their heels, saying that they uh, they will uh, they do not uh, want to accept this uh, concessions deal. So we're just going to have to. You know, keep an eye on um, you know what what happens uh, at the end of this month, John. I appreciate you again on short notice on uh, coming on and um, giving your take on this uh, concessions deal. Oh, you're very welcome. It's it's been a pleasure. Uh, um, have a good night, David. Thanks. Okay. Thanks a lot, John. All right. Take care. That was our guest contributor, John Hollis, a retired State of Connecticut employee and a former union steward, uh, providing us with his analysis of the uh, concessions deal between uh, Governor Dan Malloy and the State Employees Union that was ratified today by state workers by an 83% to 17% margin. This week we'll share a clip from a Democracy Now! interview with Jackson, Mississippi Mayor Chokwe Lumumba, Chokwe Antar Lumumba, who was sworn in July 3rd. The Community Party will provide updates on the Lumumba administration. Lumumba was interviewed by Amy Goodman. Ken, please play the clip. Mississippi Mayor-elect Shokwe Antar Lumumba speaking earlier this month at the People's Summit in Chicago. Well, he joins us now live from Jackson, Mississippi. Mayor-elect Lumumba, welcome to Democracy Now! 
Thank you so much, Amy. I'm happy to be on your program with you today. So one week from today, you're going to be sworn in as the next mayor of Jackson, Mississippi. Um, talk about your plans. What are your going to be your first actions in office? Okay, I can Well, Amy, uh, we're putting together, uh, we, we have a transition team uh, that's in place right now and, and looking at the issues which Jackson is facing. Uh, making certain that we don't make plans just off conjecture, but a, a fact-based analysis of where we find our city and, and bringing together not only people who have the acumen and ability and skill to do the job, but people who have a passion, a passion which goes beyond just the way we see electoral politics, but a passion to change people's lives. Um, and part of that process is putting together a budget uh, shortly after we take office, we have to pass a budget. And so it's important that, that we have the right people in place. Uh, one of the symbolic uh, measures that we're going to take immediately as we take office is a citywide cleanup. Uh, it's more than just, you know, taking care of the aesthetic appeal of our city. It's about unifying the city. It's about bringing people from all areas of the city together uh, and taking a collective interest in, in how our city looks. Uh, you know, I harken back to the words of my mother, if you don't care for your house, no one else will. And so we're, we're going to take those uh, easy first steps uh, that is symbolic of where we're going and the direction we're headed in collectively. You referred to your mother. Can you talk about the origins of your name, Shokwe? Shokwe Antar Lumumba. Uh, Amy, I couldn't hear you. My, my earpiece. Oh, uh, can you talk about the, or repeat that question. the origins of your name, Shokwe Antar Lumumba? So uh, my father changed his name uh, when he was in law school and, and accepted a name that uh, he believed to be more culturally identifiable. Uh, Shokwe is the name of a tribe in the Angola region, a tribe that was uh, resistant to the slave trade. Uh, the name Shokwe means hunter. Antar is uh, the name of a uh, historic poet and warrior who died while saving a woman from drowning. And uh, Antar means poet and warrior. Uh, Lumumba, I'm given that name from our namesake, Patrice Lumumba, the form, pri former prime minister of the Congo. And Lumumba means gifted. And can you talk about, I mean, your, your rise to, the, uh, may, to becoming mayor of Jackson is very interesting. Um, because the incumbent mayor, Tony Yarber, won the special election against you in 2014, the race that determined who would finish your father's term after he died in office. Um, your thoughts about losing to him then, but defeating him in this race, what changed? Well, you know, as I've shared with many people, uh, hindsight is twenty twenty, and uh, I'm actually grateful that we lost the election in, in 2014, not because the sincerity was not there, uh, not because we don't believe we could have done a good job, uh, but we've been able to, you know, appreciate far more that's going on with the city of Jackson, and I've been able to appreciate more within myself. Uh, you know, people have to remember in 2014, not only did I bury my father in a two-month time span and then enter into an election, uh, my wife was uh, pregnant with our first child. And so there was a world of change. You had a first-time candidate who had not run for junior class president, much less mayor of a city. Uh, and so we've been able to, to you know, gather more information and, 
and position ourselves uh, better. And so everything happens in a perfect timing. And so we're, we're happy where we find ourselves at this, this time to, to move forward the agenda that my father em, embarked on, uh, an agenda of a people's platform, one that was not only you know, uh, symbolic of his work in his short term as mayor, but symbolic of his work, a lifetime of work that, that he subscribed to and also ultimately dedicated his family towards. I want to go back to your father, Shokwe Lumumba. In June 2013, I interviewed him just after he was elected mayor. There are some people historically who have always tried to separate the populations and to have a certain portion of the population oppress the rest of the population. We're not going to tolerate that. We're going to move ahead. Uh, we're going to let everyone participate in this movement forward. We're going to invite everyone to participate in this movement forward. Uh, and, and we have formed like a people's assembly. That's key to what we've done here, uh, where we have uh, every three months the population uh, can come out and participate in open form to say what's on their mind. That was Shokwe Lumumba in 2013 when he was mayor-elect in the very same studio that you, mayor-elect Lumumba, are sitting in right now. In that speech we just played that you gave at the People's Summit, where I first met you just a few weeks ago in Chicago, you said we're going to be the most radical city on the planet. What does that look like? Uh, it, it looks like uh, a plan where we, you know, uh, change the way we view electoral politics. Um, you know, in that speech, I spoke about not accepting someone's agenda for our lives, but creating one ourselves. Uh, so giving people more control of their governance is, is what that looks like. It's, it's an inclusive process. Uh, sometimes when we use the word radical, people find themselves in fear and, and question whether they're a part of that, that radical agenda. And that's exactly our plan, is to incorporate more people, giving people voice who have not had it. Uh, that is a shift from what we've seen uh, in traditional politics. Uh, it's usually the, the, the lay of the land is, is given to those who are most privileged. Um, and so we're, we're trying to incorporate more people in the process, give voice to the voiceless. Uh, and, and it starts with uh, identifying, you know, the areas of greatest need. We, we need to, you know, show our workers, our city workers, and, and, you know, even the unionized work that we need. We need to show people dignity and respect in their jobs and also see the economic uh, benefit of it. Well, uh, you know, Jackson is like many cities. It, it does not have a problem producing wealth. It has a problem maintaining wealth. And so if you put more money in the people's hands that live and work here, you stand a greater chance of receiving it back. And so we're also going to, to look at practical solutions to our problems. Uh, it is about forming relationships. It is about uh, operational unity and, and making certain that you can work with people who may historically find themselves on the opposite end of, of a struggle that you may be in, engaged in, such as the state, such as you know a, a, a Trump administration. And so you want to identify your common ends and, and see how you exploit those common goals in order to arrive at, at the solutions that benefit us all. But it's also about how you take, uh, make better use of the resources you have. Uh, what we look at as um, 
Mayor, look, I'm uh, going to interrupt uh, just because we only have a minute. Yes. And I want to ask, um, Jackson drew a lot of attention earlier this year when Daniela Vargas, who was a 22-year-old undocumented immigrant, was arrested by ICE after she had just held a news conference. Um, her um, uh, pending application for renewal of DACA status, it was pending. Is Jackson going to be a sanctuary city? Uh, Jackson is going to be a city which protects human rights for human beings. Uh, I don't care whether uh, your ancestors arrived on the Mayflower or whether you joined us more recently, uh, you deserve the same protections and respect in this city. And so um, I, I find, we find ourselves in interesting times where the word sanctuary becomes a negative phrase. Uh, I'm proud of the work my father did in order to secure an anti-racial profiling ordinance in the city, and we will continue to protect uh, everyone who, who lives within our city and, and make the certain that they're not harassed. The, the issue of police um, accountability. Um, in the last weeks, we have seen um, two police officers acquitted or uh, cases with mistrials uh, around the killing of African-American uh, motorists. Your thoughts? I think we have a criminal justice system in our country which is entirely out of hand. Uh, we, you know, it's the largest business going and, and uh, the fact that we've made the criminal justice system into more of an industry, it, it provides or creates a culture that allows for people to be harassed, killed, and, and, and shuffled in like, like cattle. Uh, we and have so 10 that, seconds. Uh, in, encourages an environment of police brutality. And so what we want to do is be ahead of the curve in the city of Jackson. Uh, we want to see... Uh, We're going to have to leave it there. Which, I thank you so much. And we'll cover uh, your um, the day you become mayor. Jackson, Mississippi Mayor Chokwe Antar Lumumba, who was sworn in July 3rd. Live from Hartford, Connecticut, you're listening to Community Party Radio on So Metro Radio. I'm David Samuels. Last month, I watched uh, the Senate debate on the Connecticut Republican state budget proposal, which includes provisions that would strip state employees of our collective bargaining rights. I got to tell you, it's not fun being a state worker right now. Governor Dan Malloy and the Democrats are coming after us with an axe, while Senator Len Fasano and the Republicans want to toss us into a thresher. Neither party, both swimming in corporate donations, wants to address corporate welfare and other business tax breaks, which cost this state $7 billion in revenue every year. Connecticut companies stash $180 billion in offshore accounts, according to an article from the Hartford Business Journal. Luke Bronin, a carpetbagger from Greenwich, whose 2015 mayoral campaign was bankrolled mostly by donors outside of Hartford, has taken steps toward the city filing for bankruptcy. Uh, Bronin has uh, hired a law firm that specializes in bankruptcy proceedings. While Bronin wears a long face and uh, pretends that he doesn't want to go this route, the reality is that bankruptcy would be the express lane to Bronin's ultimate goal, busting the municipal union. In 2016, Bronin introduced legislation to strip city workers of their collective bargaining rights. The public sector is the largest employer of black people and women. 
the bipartisan attack on state workers and city of Hartford employees will only fuel racial wage and wealth disparities. Black people earn 60 cents for every dollars whites make and possess only 12 cents of net wealth for every dollar that white people have. Houses are the primary wealth asset for black people. You'll see the uh, significance of that statistic shortly. Black Agenda Report commentator Abayomi Azikwe reported in 2013 on Detroit residents fighting to stop the catastrophic effect of bankruptcy on their city. Unfortunately, these brave citizens were unable to stop the city from uh, filing for bankruptcy. Azikwe's report included testimony by Michael Shane. This is uh, uh, reading now from Azikwe's BAR report. Uh, Shane is a resident of the northwest side of Detroit. He told the bankruptcy court how the impact of predatory lending carried out by the banks had contributed to the economic crisis of the city. He described the practices of the banks as illegal and racist in its overall character. The financial crisis in Detroit was triggered by the housing crisis where an estimated 100,000 home foreclosures occurred and almost a quarter million people left the city. The banks issued predatory loans targeting Detroit and other communities of color in a racist and illegal manner, Shane said in court. Shane then emphasized that, quoting again now, the banks have already been fined tens of billions of dollars and former bank employees are testifying under oath, confirming the illegal and racist practices of the banks. Some of this testimony includes racially offensive language that cannot be repeated in polite company. These banks include many of the same banks who hold Detroit's debt. Property and income taxes dropped precipitously during this crisis, causing huge losses to the city of Detroit. And to make matters even worse, the banks refused to pay property taxes on homes seized after foreclosure. Shane, that's what Shane told uh, Judge Rhodes, the bankruptcy uh, court judge. Another objector to the bankruptcy filing was Cynthia Blair, the widow of a Detroit police officer. Blair has been active in attempts to mobilize retirees and their families against the program of cuts and austerity austerity being imposed by Orr and Snyder. Blair said the bankruptcy could take me and my daughter's pension away and we would be thrown directly to the welfare rolls. The banks issued predatory loans targeting Detroit and other communities of color in an illegal and racist manner. According to the figures released by the emergency manager, Detroit has over $22 billion in long-term debt these purported debts are to the banks, bondholders, and insurers who have, pl who have played the most significant role in the decline of the city. That was a report from uh, uh, Bayoni Azikwe, a black agenda report commentator on the bankruptcy in Detroit. House Majority Leader Matt Ritter talked about City of Hartford employees rejecting a concessions deal 
during a May Hartford Current podcast. Ritter made it clear that bankruptcy is a possibility if municipal workers don't agree to wage and benefit cuts as state workers did today. The public sector, once again, is the largest employer of black people and women. Now, I worked with Matt Ritter since he was on the city council. The gulf between our policy positions has grown to the point where collaboration is simply no longer possible. We need a grassroots, independent political movement to fight back against the neoliberal attack on public sector workers. Ritter fully supports the Democrats' neoliberal agenda, and he must be held accountable. Saqib Badi, director of the Refund America Project, talked to the Real News Network producer Jaisal Noor about how the threat of bankruptcy is used to scare public sector workers into accepting austerity measures when reforming a regressive tax system, especially corporate tax subsidies, could fund vital city services. Ken, please play the clip. Welcome to the Real News Network. I'm Jessel Noor in Baltimore. Detroit's 2013 bankruptcy, the largest of its kind in history, was not inevitable, and neither is Chicago's. But the austerity hawks don't want you to know that. That's according to a new piece by, Sa by Saqib Bati in In These Times. He's now joining us. He's a fellow at the Roosevelt Institute and director of the Refund America Project. Thanks so much for joining us. Thank you. So conventional wisdom dictates that Detroit had to go bankrupt because of its bloated public pensions. Uh, you, you have a different take on this and the road that Detroit took to address its bankruptcy and what the, what the lessons are for the rest of the country, including cities like Chicago. Right, no, there's, there's this narrative out there that Detroit went bankrupt and the bankruptcy was inevitable uh, because of the city's pensions. Uh, and in fact, you know, to emerge from bankruptcy, uh, the city did end up cutting pensions uh, for, its, for, its, uh, for its retirees. Uh, but the thing that people don't realize is that Detroit didn't cut pensions to get out of bankruptcy. Detroit filed bankruptcy so they could cut pensions. Uh, the reality is that there was a broader political agenda uh, and cutting pensions was really high on that list and bankruptcy was the means that they used to accomplish that goal. There was nothing about the Detroit bankruptcy that, that was inevitable. Uh, it was a political decision made by state officials uh, in conjunction with the emergency manager of the city to really push the city uh, into bankruptcy so they could get around uh, constitutional, state constitutional prohibitions against slashing pensions. And, uh, you know, in your story, you mentioned how many other cities have been compared to the, what, what could be the next Detroit, including cities like Baltimore. But, you know, commentators, commentators say that, you know, state law would prevent that from happening. But that was also the case in Detroit. Is that correct? Right. In Detroit, um, I mean, Michigan, Michigan state law now permits uh, municipalities to file bankruptcy. Currently, there's 26 states that do not allow it. So uh, cities file bankruptcy under Chapter 9 of the, of the U.S. Bankruptcy Code. But under Chapter 9, the, fi the filing actually has to be authorized by, by the state. Uh, and so currently, there's 26 states that do not authorize it. The thing that's interesting is when people talk about the next Detroit, uh, they seem to completely disregard that fact. So one, one city that's often mentioned as the next Detroit is Chicago. Well, in Chicago, um, in Chicago's in Illinois, Illinois does not allow municipalities to file bankruptcy. 
uh, there's a bill before the legislature right now to try to change that, but that bill is not passing. Uh, it's not. It's basically dead on arrival. Um, and the other thing that's interesting is we've also seen uh, people talk about states going bankrupt. Uh, and that's another thing that's just not possible. The bankruptcy code, uh, federal law does not allow states to go bankrupt, period. And so what we're seeing in a lot of places is this talk of bankruptcy is basically uh, part of a, a political agenda to really scare people into accepting draconian cuts and austerity agenda. Uh, and the idea is that if you sort of scare people enough and say, look what happened to Detroit, you don't want that to happen to your city, you can force them to accept painful cuts, uh, you can you know, really move a uh, radically, radically regressive agenda just by scaring people, even though bankruptcy is typically not even on the table. And so talk about um, what the alternatives to this could be. Because, you know, you, you, one of the things you propose is raising taxes, but, you know, critics would say um, taxes are high enough, and if you, if you raise taxes, you're just going to drive away businesses, and you're only going to further hurt the economy. Right. The issue is not raising any taxes. It's raising progressive taxes, right? So one of the key things that we have right now uh, in a lot of places is that you know, cities re rely on uh, for most of their funding from property taxes, and property taxes can be done in a progressive way, but typically they're not. And so it really is how do we actually figure out how to change that? So in Illinois, for instance, um, you know, where uh, Illinois has the fifth most regressive tax system in the country, two-thirds of corporations pay no income taxes at all. Uh, so we should be figuring out how we're actually you know, flipping that on its head and uh, and creating a fair tax system that allows us to properly fund services uh, while also sort of meeting our obligations to you know, workers, retirees, and everyone else. Because, of course, at the end of the day, funding workers who provide the services is part of funding the services. And, you know, we saw this in Los Angeles that after the financial crash, uh, the city's budget took a, took a steep hit and they laid off 5,000 workers. Well, those 5,000 workers provide a lot of services. And the thing that sort of happened since 2008 is that all sorts of service provisions have gone down. And so, you know, we're often what the what the, the right and sort of Republicans, conservative Democrats often try to do is say that, well, you have if you, if you raise taxes to um, you, you're doing that on the backs of the, uh, you're doing on the, on the backs of people um uh, who are trying to get service? They try to pit service service recipients uh, against service providers. And the the correct solution is that we need proper funding for services. Period. And proper funding for services means uh, you got to fund the workers as well as the the actual delivery of the service. And that's how you actually end up with a good, healthy economy. The other thing that's important to note is when we talk about you know helping the economy, uh, if you eliminate, uh, if you sort of slash pensions down to uh, drastically, that actually has a huge and negative impact on the economy. Uh, some of the best jobs in, uh, in cities, particularly uh, in cities with, um, you know, that are predominantly uh, or majority minority, uh, are often public sector jobs. And if you're actually slashing pensions uh, or going after the public sector, that's going to have a huge impact on the broader economy in the city. And so how do we change this conversation? Because, you know, as you alluded to, this threat of bankruptcy is being used to go after public sector pensions. Um, in in Baltimore, um, you know, this financial shortfall has led to 
A similar move to what's happened in Detroit. Thousands of people have had their water cut off because they say the mm-hmm. city, because you know the city says they are owed millions of dollars um, in overdue water bills. So how do we, re, you know, rephrase that conversation? How do we put the the wealthy kind of on the defensive instead of always being on the the offensive? I mean, it's important to really shine a light on who is paying their fair share and who is not. And looking at any crisis, it's also important to look at who's profiting off of it. Uh, and, you know, the, you mentioned the example of the Baltimore water uh, and the Detroit water. Well, in both of those cases, one of the big profiteers was actually Wall Street banks that had roped uh, both the city of Detroit and the city of Baltimore into interest rate swap deals that completely backfired as a result of the economic crash. Uh, and the end of costing uh, both cities, Detroit and, and Baltimore, tens of millions each year. Uh, and so, uh, you know, in, in the case of Detroit, uh, the Detroit Water Department had to pay more than half a billion dollars in penalties on these swaps in uh, in 2012. And as a result of that, uh, the water bill skyrocketed because they had to take out a new bond to pay that off. Uh, and currently, about 40 percent of the water bill goes towards paying off those swaps. Um, and the thing that's the, the kicker there is that there's actually a very strong legal argument that those swaps were illegally done uh, and that if the city were to actually file a lawsuit to get that money back, they could potentially recover that money. But that's never been on the table. Uh, instead, the, there, there's a big push to really just you know, to turn off people's water, even if they're only behind a couple of payments. You know, they'll turn off people's water for $150, uh, but they're not trying to recover the half a billion that they paid to the banks. And we have a similar thing happening in Baltimore, where the interest rate swaps in Baltimore uh, were actually directly linked. A lot of them were directly linked to the water and wastewater system. And um, and they've actually really sucked a lot of money out of budget. And so, I mean, that's just one way that we can start shining a light on who's not paying their fair share. But really, the key thing is looking at uh, these types of financial deals, looking at corporate tax subsidies, looking at, um, you know, who are the people who are lobbying to keep taxes down, particularly progressive taxes, uh, because the, the solution is not cutting. The, the fact is that, uh, you know, we've had... Uh, a, an anti-government, an anti-government, anti-tax environment in this country for the past 35 years uh, since, since you know, Ronald Reagan's presidency. Uh, and we've actually cut services to the bone already. We can't cut out any more without permanently crippling ourselves. We need to actually start finding ways to put more money on the table so we can properly fund the services that we all know that we, we, that we need and deserve. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. And thank you for joining us at The Real News Network. That was Saqib Badi, director of the Refund America Project, talking to the Real News Network producer Jason Knorr about how the threat of bankruptcy is used to scare public workers into accepting austerity measures when reforming a regressive tax system, especially corporate tax subsidies, could fund vital city services. Connecticut Republicans have launched an offensive to take control of the governor's mansion and control of the General Assembly in 2018. The sad truth is that the right wing of the duopoly is pushing fiscal policies based on tax cuts that are a blueprint for even greater disaster than what we've seen from the Democrats. In Kansas, GOP Governor Sam Brownback implemented a plan 
developed by economist Stephen Moore of the right-wing think tank, the Heritage, Fo Heritage Foundation, and Arthur Laffer, who are also involved with President Donald Trump's federal budget. Center on Budget and Policy Priorities columnist Michael Mazaroff reported on the Moore-Laffer plan. I'm reading from his report. Moore and Laffer were principal architects of the tax cut plan that Kansas Governor Sam Brownback recommended and the legislature enacted in revised form in 2012. Moore described his and Laffer's role in developing the plan, its keys feet its, its key features as enacted and its objective this way. Uh, a few years ago, Arthur Laffer and I advised Governor Sam Brownback on an aggressive tax reduction plan to help revive an underperforming Kansas economy. And result was a reduction in income taxes, income tax rate. The top rate fell to 4.5% from 6% with further redu reductions planned for further years, a feature that reduces taxes on pass-through income earned by small businesses to zero. Our goal, and one shared from Brownback, is to make Kansas the 10th state without an income tax. That was the Moore and Laffer statement. The Kansas tax cut package has had a deleterious impact on the state's financial stability and the provision of critical services. For example, personal income tax revenues in the fiscal year ending June 30th, 2016, fiscal year 2016, were almost $700 million lower than those received in fiscal year 2013 when the tax cut first took effect even though the economy is nationally nationally is stronger in 2016 than it was in 2013. Receipts dropped immediately by slightly more than $700 million, 24%, and the meager economic growth that occurred in Kansas from 2014 to 2016 boosted collections by only $30 million or less than 2%. Total general fund revenues in 2016 were $570 million below 2013 levels, despite significant sales and cigarette tax increases enacted to partially offset the income tax losses. The general fund's ending balance fell from $709 million in 2013 to $40 million in 2016, just 0.7% of general fund spending. That's important because Kansas's general fund balance is its rainy day fund. Should a recession hit and tax revenue shrink as household incomes and retail sales fail, the state will need to cut programs or enact tax increases almost immediately because it will have little savings to tap. The general fund's depletion occurred even though the state transferred to the fund substantial tax revenues that were collected to finance road maintenance and construction. The resulting reduction in infrastructure funding has forced the state to postpone numerous highway projects indefinitely. Because the tax cuts leave less state revenue with which to repay people who lend the state money by buying its bonds, Kansas's bond rating has been downgraded twice. 
2014, and most recently on July 26, 2016. Lower bond ratings mean that the state will likely have to pay a higher interest rate on future borrowing, raising the cost of infrastructure projects such as school construction and road building. Another CBPP columnist, Nicholas Johnson, he reported on the bipartisan effort by Kansas lawmakers to undo the damage of the Brownback economic plan. The Connecticut General Assembly would be wise to follow the course that's being taken in Kansas. Here's the quote from Johnson. He said that the Kansas legislature wisely voted to start rebuilding the state's lagging economy by eliminating unwarranted tax breaks and raising much-needed revenue to invest in schools and other vital services that will help the state and its people now and in the future. A bipartisan supermajority of both houses recognized the damage that Governor Brownback's tax cuts have caused and came together to choose a different path. This vote represents a striking repudiation of far-right right-wing economic orthodoxy and as such will influence fiscal deba debates far beyond the state's borders. Kansas is now choosing a constructive and forward-looking approach to its finances, and other states will be taking notice. That's from CBPP columnist Nicholas Johnson. Mike Malloy blasted Governor Brownback's disastrous fiscal policies on his radio show. Ken, please play the clip. Um, getting away from Trump for just a second, uh, you know, you've heard me talk over the past couple of years about this psycho who is the governor of Kansas, Kansas the Republican Sam Brownback, uh, and how as soon as he got into office, he slashed and burned the tax structure in Kansas, uh, reduced all taxes everywhere, especially on corporations, practically to zero, but in that process, he destroyed the infrastructure by that I mean education and, and arts and, and uh, so on and so forth in Kansas, his idea was, and it's a bullshit idea, I don't know how many times these guys have to keep reinventing a wheel that has four sides to it. You know, the goddamn thing won't roll, Sam. Uh, you know, Reagan found that out. But no, you Republican jackasses have to keep doing it. So uh, the corporations that were supposed to be attracted to Kansas by the deep tax cuts... Um, hesitated and then said, no, don't think so, because they could see what was happening in the state. Well, after five years of this bullshit, uh, believe it or not, a coalition in that state made up of conservatives, moderate Republicans, and Democrats finally came together and, according to Salon, delivered the major death blow to Brownback's failed supply-side economics experiment. How did they do it? These legislators just voted for the largest tax increase in the history of the state of Kansas. In an attempt to repair the incredible damage that this rat bastard had, had perpetrated against the people in that state. Now, Brownback had vetoed an earlier effort to overturn, I think we mentioned it uh, in one of these podcasts, to overturn his failed tax reform experiment. Uh, 
But that proved uh, impotent after the lawmakers immediately voted to override his veto, and this happened last night. The Senate voted 27 to 13, the, the, the Senate in, in Kansas, and the State House voted 88 to 31 to override Brownback's veto. That's according to the uh, Kansas City Star newspaper. Now, both the chambers in Congress, uh, I'm sorry, in Kansas, are led by Republicans. And the legislature uh, had already voted to end Kansas' failed trickle-down economics experiment back in February. But the Senate had been unable to get enough votes to override Brownback's veto. But this time, supporters of the bill... Uh, to raise taxes, had four votes more than the two-thirds majority needed to override this asshole's veto. And the Kansas City Star reported it this way, quote, a major vote in the House came from the leading Republican in that chamber. House Speaker Ron Rickman, uh, uh, an Olath Republican, that's a town, Olath, near Kansas City, resisted tax increases for much of the 2017 section. But last night, Rickman voted to override the governor's veto. He had not voted for the tax plan when it passed the House Monday night. Immediately after the House adjourned, the House Speaker, Rickman, rushed to his office, shut the door, and didn't answer a question about his vote. (laughs) Cowardly little prick. I mean, even when the state is going down the tubes, these Republican cowards who finally, after five years, realize that their state is going to have to declare bankruptcy, the education system is falling apart, public health in the state is falling apart, infrastructure is just a word in the dictionary right now in Kansas, everything is going to hell because of what Brownback did. Look, you dumb shit Republicans, let me clue you in, you halfwits. It takes money to run a municipality or a state or a country. And how do you get the money, you dumb shits? You have to tax people. We all have to contribute. And that contribution is called a tax, you dumb shits. Now there's taxes on individuals, on corporations, on LLCs, on companies, on this and that and the other thing. And if you think you can run your tacky-ass goddamn state on no money... Take a look around at what you've done. I mean, how stupid. Jared Kushner was right when he said, oh, Trump's going to keep talking about the birther bullshit because Republicans are so stupid. They'll believe it. Yeah. Now, some background. After Brownback took office in 2011, he and the other Republican swine in that state joined forces to cut the state's already low tax rates even further. And according to um, Salon, Brownback pursued even more aggressive reforms in the following years, completely eliminating the state income tax for owner-operated businesses. He promised at the time that his so-called experiment that he was perpetrating against the people of Kansas would, his words, quote, act like a shot of adrenaline into the heart of the Kansas economy, end quote. It's more like an air bubble injected into one of the goddamn arteries, you freak. 
So in the meantime, the Kansas economy tanked. So since this right-wing asshole became governor, the growth rate in Kansas has been way below that of the Midwest region and the nation every single year. Kansas now faces projected budget shortfalls nearing a billion dollars through 2019. Now, states can't run. They can't do deficit spending. The feds can, but the states can't do it. So more cuts are going to have to come in order, along with the tax increases, to make up for what this evil son of a bitch has done. Brownback, Salon reports, and his fellow Republicans' tax reform failed so catastrophically that even other Republican lawmakers from the region have openly mocked it. Missouri Republican, right next door, State Senator Ryan Sylvie mocked Brownback's claim that cutting taxes in Kansas would result in businesses from neighboring states just rushing in. And the Missouri guy said that uh, the real joke is that Kansas's failed tax experiment was crafted and endorsed by the most influential conservatives in the country and closely mirrors President Trump's tax reform plan. In fact, both plans were designed by the same right-wing assholes. So now, as the orange bastard in the White House attempts to pass the same failed plan through a Republican-controlled Congress, Republicans in Kansas are finally willing to admit that the whole thing is a goddamn painful, miserable joke. And in order to correct it, they had to pass the largest tax increase in Kansas history. And they need to fund now a public education system that the Kansas Supreme Court recently ruled is in violation of the Kansas Constitution. These Republican fucks, they don't care who they hurt or to the degree to which the pain is administered. They don't care. The only thing that they have are their goddamn uh, red pencils to cut here and cut there, and then they rush to their little churches and bullshit with their Bibles on Sunday and say, Oh, Jesus, I am doing such a good job. Aren't I God? God and Jesus have to be tax-cutting Republicans, right, Reverend? What a bunch of assholes. That was Mike Malloy um, pulling no punches as he uh, spoke on his talk show about Can- Republican uh, Kansas Governor Sam Brownback's disastrous uh, fiscal policies. We're going to take a quick break on the other side of the break. We're going to have our final segment. Live from Hartford, Connecticut, you're listening to Community Party Radio on So Metro Radio. Best educated, best equipped, best prepared troops refuse to fight. Matter of fact, it's safe to say that they would rather switch. What we got to say? Fight the power. Fight the power. Come on. 
live from Hartford, Connecticut. You're listening to Community Party Radio on Soul Metro Radio. I'm David Samuels. June 16th, a judge found a woman guilty of killing a white male with text and a phone call. Later, a jury found a cop not guilty of killing Philando Castile with bullets. In my opinion, the ruling class wants to seal off peaceful means of police reform because they want to provoke a street war between people of color and the police. If cops are killed, this can be used to argue for militarization, repression of urban neighborhoods, racial profiling, and harsher sentencing guidelines. The system continues to fail black people. Those were the words from uh, Valerie Castile, Philando's mother. Uh, she said this after the acqu acquittal of Geronimo Yanez, the Minnesota police officer who fatally shot her son. And she said it will continue, the system will continue to fail you all. Respectfully, I must disagree with Ms. Castile. The system is designed to oppress people of color, so it's working exactly the way it's supposed to. The rulers don't give a damn about protests. That should be clear at this point. What they do fear is a system being dismantled, which requires radical policy change. We just saw again in Minnesota, Justine DeMond, um, a, a white unarmed woman who, who was gunned down on Saturday uh, by, uh, by police. Uh, they were supposed to be uh, wearing body cameras. The body cameras were turned off at the time of the shooting, as was the dash camera in the cruiser. So uh, it's, it's not just uh, it's touching black people. Uh, black, Latino, and indigenous people are killed at a disproportionate rate, but it's mostly white people who are being killed by police in this country. Just uh, police. Police in this country kill people at a rate of 70 times more than police in all other first world nations. I recently watched a CNN segment titled Delivering Law and Order to Inner Cities. Predictably, the piece aired after coverage of protests in Minnesota following the Philando Castile verdict. Gun violence in Baltimore was the focus. There was a lot of talk about more police, harsher drug sentences. The brief mention about the need for jobs was made by Baltimore Mayor Catherine Pugh, a Democrat who vetoed the city council ordinance raising the minimum wage to $15 an hour. Pugh ran on a campaign, campaign platform that included raising the minimum wage to $15 an hour. Too much talking. That's my reaction to Trinity College professor Johnny Williams endorsing a blog post which tells people to be indifferent to the suffering of white bigots. Now, I read the post, and my response is that everything that happens or doesn't happen in this country is because of policy. Two white cops gunned down Charlena Lyles, a pregnant black mother of three children in Seattle because the current system protects killer cops. Now, I do policy work. I've been doing it for 13 years, and I don't have time for esoteric debates about what I should do if I see a bigot drowning. I know the chances of that happening today are next to zero. There's a much higher chance of me being pulled over by a cop who will feel like they can put a hole in me because policy will protect him or her. 
My message to Williams and his supporters is, is that if they want to actually do something about structural racism, then they need to step to the Connecticut Democrats because they are propping up the system that protects dirty cops while police officers who speak up about racism, brutality, and corruption are run off the force. Democratic urban legislators didn't make a peep about police accountability during the 2000 legislative session until 15-year-old Jason Negron was fatally shot by Bridgeport police officer James Boulay. After the shooting, a press conference was hastily called to bring attention to Representative Robin Porter's bill, which didn't even come close to addressing police repression of communities of color. Now, prior to the shooting, all the community party got from House Majority Leader Matt Ritter and Senator Gary Winfield was a shrug when we complained about the lack of support for our two police accountability bills. Now, some black folks want to fixate only on Republican Congressman Steve Scalise, the primary target in the Virginia mass shooting, who is known for his racism and homophobia. What about the urban legislators in Hartford, New Haven, and Bridgeport who are in a position to change policy and are doing nothing to dismantle the current system? Confederate flags and statues are rightfully a focus of outrage, but what about the other monuments to slavery? Hartford, New Haven, and Bridgeport annually have the highest poverty rates in the country. The unemployment rate for young black males in some areas of Hartford is as high as 50%, while the overall jobless rate for blacks are at Depression-era levels. We have talked to urban legislators about the draconian cash assistance program in Connecticut, which perpetuates the cycle of poverty in urban neighborhoods. The response we got was lip service. There is police accountability and economic justice legislation at the state capitol every year. These are bills that could really change things. The outrage that's aimed at Republicans like Scalise and white supremacists should also be directed at the Democrats who control predominantly black cities that are engulfed by poverty and gun violence. Conversations about racism must include the fact that the Democrats and Republicans deprive communities of color of jobs and resources. Instead of huffing and puffing on social media, people need to get engaged in the political process. Green Party presidential candidate Jill Stein's domestic policy platform included a Green New Deal, which is identical to uh, the Community Party's urban policy plan, a federal jobs program that's modeled after Franklin Delano Roosevelt's New Deal. The New Deal provided over 8 million jobs at the height of the Depression as people were hired and were trained and hired to work on infrastructure projects. Another New Deal program targeting communities with the highest poverty and unemployment employment rates is part of the prescription for economic justice in this nation. Dr. Stein's platform also included universal health care, free college, abolishing student loan debt, slashing the bloated military budget, which is currently 54% of the federal budget, and independent investigators based in communities of color to probe police brutality cases. Now, how many black folks who have involved themselves in the, the Johnny Eric Williams slap, how many of them voted for Dr. Stein? Hillary Clinton, a racist, neoliberal warmonger who enthusiastically supported Bill Clinton's racist crime and so-called welfare bills, 
which have fueled black mass incarceration and poverty, respectively. One Connecticut and the vast majority of the black vote in this state. This is madness, y'all. Dr. Stein dismantled the Democratic Party propaganda about her costing Hillary the presidential election during her recent appearance on CNN's Smirconish show. Stein pointed out that after the picture of her seated at a table with Vladimir Putin's, Putin that labels have, liberals have pasted to their foreheads uh, during a conference in Moscow surfaced long after the election, as the Democrats looked for anyone to blame for the loss of a candidate who, like Donald Trump, had historically high negative ratings. Dr. Stein reminded viewers that, like her presidential campaign, her appearance at the conference with Putin was totally ignored by the U.S. media because of her message. Dr. Stein spoke against militarism by the U.S. and Russia, touting her peace offensive plan that included a joint U.S.-Russia weapons embargo, which would include the allies of both nations, and freezing the bank accounts of countries that sponsor terrorism. When Sprankanish tossed out Stein's vote totals in battleground states that Hillary lost, Dr. Stein countered with exit poll and research data. The numbers show that if Stein had not been on the ballot in battleground states, 61% of Green Party voters would have stayed home rather than vote for Hillary and Trump, and that one-third of the Greens who would have voted would have supported Trump. Dr. Stein added that 45% of registered voters did not support Hillary or Trump. Finally, Dr. Stein said that Democrats can't blame her for their loss of 1,100 legislative seats in the past 10 years. Uh, it's not on her. The Democrats have also lost on in the governor's seats. Two-thirds of the governors at this point are Republicans. So just to sum up, when it comes to um, to Mr. John Eric Williams and, and, and his group, again, what I have to say to them is they, they, they just these protests and these uh, you know this, this talking on social media that is going that is it's not gonna do it, y'all. They need to step to the Democratic Party. If they really want to make change in the state, they need to take on the on the Democrats. The Democrats are supposed to be a friend of people of color, and they are once again they are propping up the system that 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 protects uh, corrupt, racist, dirty cops, and also uh, racist, corrupt economic system. And finally, we're going to end tonight with uh, a brief note on Colin Kaepernick. Uh, I was watching Fox Sports yesterday. Uh, they were interviewing Mike Vick, former quarterback. Uh, he said that Colin Kaepernick should cut his afro to get a team to sign him. Now, when um, Vick and uh, Ray Lewis, who is also made comments about Colin Kaepernick saying that Kaepernick uh, cannot be an activist and, and a football player. When these two are done stepping in fe fetching for massa, they should note that the one person 
who's not talking about what Colin Kaepernick needs to do to get signed by another NFL team is Kaepernick himself. Kaepernick obviously knew that being blackballed by the NFL was a likely consequence of his national anthem um, protest. Kaepernick could easily get his agent on the phone and have him or her set up a, an I'm sorry media tour, uh, but you don't see that happening. So I, once again, I would say to uh, to Vic and um, and and Lewis, uh need to stop need to stop the cooning straight up and i think that ray what ray lewis needs to do is to tell folks what happened to the white suit he was wearing uh the night uh of uh, of that double murder uh the suit uh disappeared and um has 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 never been recovered this is this is a guy who who snitched on his friends uh to get out of uh a double murder case uh, that was the case um several years ago where uh, he ended up uh being uh being charged with obstruction of justice and no and no one was um ended up being convicted in that double murder case so all i can say to colin kaepernick is uh is, you know you're a champion and keep your head up and uh i don't think we're going to see uh, colin kaepernick uh, stepping and fetching uh, for the NFL, and I think he is. Um, if, if he is not playing football again, I think he's going to be just fine because he is uh, definitely becoming one of the top activists in the United States. That's just going to about do it for uh, today's show. I would like to thank once again uh, John Hollis for joining joining me to talk about the uh, state employee concessions deal with Connecticut Governor Dan Malloy. Check out our Twitter page, at Community Party One. The tweet promoting tonight's show includes resource information on our show topics. We've also posted ordering info for my book, False Choice, The Bipartisan Attack on the Working Class, the Poor, and Communities of Color. Visit SoMetroRadio.com for info on Community Party Radio replays and podcasts. Shout out to Program Director Kay Rose, who produced tonight's show from the SoMetro Radio studio in Dallas. Our next show will be Tuesday, August 1st, 8 p.m. Eastern Time, 7 p.m. Central, 5 p.m. Pacific. Thanks for listening to Community Party Radio on SoMetro Radio. You have been listening to the Get Global Network podcast of the Community Party Radio Show, hosted by David Samuels and co-hosted by Mary Sanders. You can hear the show live on the first and third Tuesdays of each month, 8 p.m. Eastern, 7 p.m. Central, and 5 p.m. Pacific Time on SoMetro Radio, one of the original member stations of the Get Global Network. Listen to the show on the go or hear replays of previous shows by installing any of the Get Global Network apps like SoMetro Magazine and Grassroots Salute for your cell phone. 
The apps are available for download on both Google Play and the iTunes app store. Take the time to subscribe to our podcast via iTunes, Stitcher, TuneIn, or the Spreaker Podcast Network.